Sarah Sandlind and Talk Immigration is supported by the Migration Research Group and the Department of Politics at the University of Sheffield. If you work for a Western military in places such as Afghanistan or Iraq, you might think that you would be able to settle in that Western country that you worked for, especially if your life is at risk due to the work that you performed. But things are not that straightforward. A new report by the UK Parliament's Common Defence Select Committee is highly critical of how the UK government has treated Afghan interpreters and other civilians who are not safe in Afghanistan. Earlier this month, the UK government made some concessions towards Afghan interpreters who have applied for indefinite leave to remain in the UK. Yet many people's lives are still in limbo, including Nasir Ayans, a former Afghan interpreter now living in the UK, who joins this episode to discuss how the UK and other Western countries treat their former military employees. We are also joined by Dr. Sarah de Jong, Research Fellow at the Open University. Sarah de Jong currently conducts research on the claims for protection, rights and settlement by Afghans and Iraqis who have worked for Western military forces and development organisations, as well as on the activities and strategies of their supporters. To start us off, I asked Nasir Ayan to tell us about what he's doing now and what it was like when he came to the UK. Please note that this episode was recorded before the Commons report had been published. Okay, thank you. So, uh, I currently work in a construction company, which is owned by a Polish and an Irish man. It is in central London, and I play the role of a doorman responsible for the deliveries, for the security of the gates, for the reception, for logging out and logging in the guests, and for some other primary responsibilities within the gate. So I came to the UK in 2013. I fled Afghanistan because as a military interpreter and as an employee of the British government in Afghanistan, it wasn't possible for me to remain in a dangerous and hostile society. So I tried to, I decided to flee and seek refuge in, in the UK because of my, my, my life. Um, and did you then apply for asylum in the UK? Yes, uh, as usual, I applied for asylum. I was not expecting to go through a process which other people or ordinary asylum seekers usually go through. But uh, that was the procedure which I was instructed to, to, to go by. So I you... wasn't... Sorry. I did not receive uh, a warm welcome by the British government, nor by the Home Office or any other independent organization. And there wasn't any preferences offered to me or to a category of people who were recruited as interpreters for the British Army in Afghanistan. And we were mixed with every other ordinary asylum seeker. And we were placed in a dreary hostel in a far part of the United Kingdom. So uh, did you eventually um, get asylum? Um, I got asylum due to the pressure from some charities 
and from the media. The government wasn't very happy to give me or to offer me asylum immediately or to grant me status as I arrived. It took them a while, about one year. And then I finally got asylum and I was able to stay in the UK legally. Yeah. And you said you were kind of expecting to get a different kind of treatment because of the work that you'd been doing? Is that right? This is absolutely true, yes. Uh, we are. I was expecting uh, to be treated differently than other people. And I still expect to be treated differently than other ordinary people who come to the UK from other countries, from the rest of the world. Because uh, there are values and there are uh, uh, some sacrifices which we have made for the British government and for the British army, and they have to be recognized. So um, it would be good to, to see an organization or a body to come up with recognition of our sacrifices and our efforts or our work and to offer us solidarity and, and support in any form or shape. Yeah. So, Sarah, um, you, uh, you've um, done some research on um, people in Nazi's situation. Uh, do you want to just give us a kind of an overview of your project and say if these obstacles and these issues that Nasir are describing are generally faced by people in similar situation? Yes, of course. Um, yeah, so I've been doing uh, research on this starting actually with my interest in the position of people who can be seen as cultural mediators or cultural brokers in the in the broadest sense of the word. And um, throughout history, these people have on the one hand, uh, been very much in demand, um, and at the same time, often, once they were not needed anymore, they have not been treated very well. They're they're seen with suspicion from both sides, from both different communities, um, and often they are kind of discarded uh, the moment that they are not needed. So I'm I'm thinking also of cultural mediators, for example, in colonial times, um, as well as, for example, you know, interpreters. Um, in Vietnam for the Americans. And so we have this recurrent issue where um, indigenous people, uh, local people are employed for certain services. And because of that, and because of the tensions that exist between the different communities, they're not trusted by their own community anymore and neither by the community that they serve. So starting from that, um, I wanted to look more closely in the position specifically of Iraqi and Afghan locally employed civilians, as we call them broadly. So most of them or many of them are interpreters, but of course they can also have um, done kind of different services. I mean, they can have been press officers or security guards, cooks, etc. Um, and in this research project, I look specifically at how locally employed civilians or locally engaged staff is um, claiming for protection um, from the countries that they served or other Western countries, as well as claiming for social rights uh, once they arrive in the West. Um, I'm not only interested in the position of locally engaged civilians themselves, but also in the way different people have become supporters or advocates for this group. So these can be lawyers, uh, they're very often veterans, 
certain politicians, other civil society activists, perhaps, you know, people who are part of um, professional associations of interpreters or linguists. Um, and what I noticed was that um, there's quite a lot of media exposure to this particular issue because there have been uh, lots of very tragic individual cases that the media reports on. Uh, but what we don't really see is a structured global overview of what is happening in different countries. So what fascinated me was that um, both in Afghanistan and in Iraq, we see an international military mission, which is coordinated collectively. But when it comes to the protection of locally engaged civilians, all of a sudden, every nation state decides for itself whether they have any system in place or do not have a system in place. And so I wanted to look at different countries to have that kind of overview and also to recognize that um, when an Afghan LEC works for the ISAF mission, they might have worked for two years for the British, but one year for the Germans. So when you have a protection scheme that is then nationally based, this often doesn't work. And so I conduct interviews and I do document analysis of uh, policies um, and media documents. And the interviews I conduct with the Afghans and Iraqis themselves who are resettled or who are here as asylum seekers or refugees. Um, yeah, as well as with those people, as I said, lawyers, um, veterans who are very outspoken in protecting them or who have set up certain projects or programs uh, who lobby very hard, who have written petitions uh, to support this particular group. That's interesting that you, I was just thinking, going back a little bit, Nasir, to what you said before, because Sarah was just saying that uh, a part of your research project is to look at people who come to support um, uh, some of these cases. And I see you mentioned that actually your asylum application wasn't successful until the media got involved. Do you want to, do you want to explain a bit what happened? So... The case of Afghan interpreters wasn't a primary issue for the British government at the beginning. We weren't recognized as a collection of people who were part of UK's government's responsibility at the, at the very beginning. So they, they didn't come up with a solution immediately to us until there was involvement from third parties, such as, as Sarah said, such as politicians in peace and especially, especially media and other campaigners. I personally was interviewed by the BBC and the Times magazine. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah, so you, so, um, but this um, media support was around uh, a group of people and not just about your individual um, case. So I guess there was a bit of momentum or... Of course, yeah. yes. So the, the media support was was uh, for a whole group of people who work the same role uh, as interpreters. And I think the media were involved for the case of the Iraqi interpreters too. But more openly, they followed the issue of Afghan interpreters broadly in the UK. Uh, the, the Daily Mail was involved, the Times Magazine was very much involved, mm. the BBC was involved. So they were following the whole case, the whole package, until they finally get, got a decision by the, by the government. Yeah, and that, that kind of, that's really interesting. It ties into your, so in your research, Sarah, you've written that um, locally employed civilians 
don't really map on perfectly to these popular images of um, who a refugee is. Um, and that this could be both a disadvantage and an advantage. I suppose the media plays a big role here, but do you want to mm -hmm. develop that a bit? Yeah, so I mean, I think, unfortunately, um, in the countries that I study, um, you know, for example, the UK, but also the US, uh, Germany, France, you see this kind of emerging, or you see a long-standing, in a way, negative discourse around migrants and refugees, right? And I think, unfortunately, lots of the negative attention and lots of the negative stereotypes, um, which are, of course, not real, but are, are images, um, are related to the kind of young male Muslim migrant who is often seen as dangerous, as a terrorist, as misogynist. Um, and I think, unfortunately, you know, what many Afghan uh, men like Nasi struggle with um, many of them who I interview is that when they walk onto the streets, you know, in the UK, they might feel that that is the image that people associate with them. So they, of course, don't at all associate it with themselves. But so on the one hand, they, they could be seen in that very negative way. And so often in my interviews, they feel really very strongly that I need to highlight, you know, I don't know, that they support women's rights, uh, that they are very well educated, um, that they are supporting Western values, that of course they're not dangerous at all. In fact, they have gone through very um, stringent security screening in order to do their job in the first place. So I think there's there's that kind of discourse that they respond to. Um, but at the same time, indeed, they are, um, as, as Nasir was saying, right, they're not your ordinary asylum seeker either, because they have a long-standing relationship often with the country that they apply uh, to asylum for, um, for asylum to. So um, you know, when they come to the UK, it's not their first encounter with the United Kingdom, for instance. They've worked for a long time for the UK. And so what you see is that a newspaper like the Daily Mail, uh, who uh, takes often a rather critical um, approach towards migrants, is that the Daily Mail has been very active in mobilizing around this particular issue. So they have a long-standing campaign, which is called Betrayal of the Brave, um, because they recognize this particular group um, as a kind of special group that, um, you know, that has uh, fulfilled a certain patriotic service that can claim for rights because they have performed certain duties. Um, and so I think they are, they are seen in a way as, as, as more deserving and arguably they are more deserving because of the work that they have done, which Nasir already outlined. Um, and I think the other thing, I mean, the, the other kind of typical refugee that you see now, right, is the is the Syrian family, the young children, the women. And of course, they also don't fit in that stereotype because often they're, they're young men. Um, some of them come with their family, some of them come on their own. And so especially, I think, in Germany, where a lot of Syrian refugees um, have arrived, of course, in the last years, you can see that they struggle with the fact that some uh, scholarship programs, for example, or certain advanced language courses are only open for Syrians and everybody wants to do something for the Syrians, but they forget about this particular group. And so they feel um, that they're also deserving, you know, even though they're not not uh, fitting that particular category of people. Mm. Nasir, do you recognize this, um, this idea of kind of, well, do you recognize this image um, of people like yourself that is kind of um, portrayed in the media perhaps? And also this notion of kind of trying to fit in and showing that 
you know, you're not this uh, dangerous figure that is kind of stereotyped? Yes, uh, we can. So, uh, um, firstly, I feel like I'm in a completely in a different land. You know, this is a Western society somewhere quite alien to me. I've come from Afghanistan with black hair, brown skin, with different culture, with a set of values, with a strange way of life from a rural part of Afghanistan in a Western, democratic, extremely civilized society of, society of, of the UK in London. So everything I see around me in the society seems very different. But, but, I do recognize and I do somehow detect that there is an area of us which has to be recognized and, 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 and particularly identified by the British government, by the society of the UK government, uh, sorry, by the British public as well. Um, this particular group of people known as interpreters are quite unique in, in their own way. You know, they are not ordinary people. We were uh, um, doing works of uh, extreme importance for Afghanistan's government as well as for the UK in, in, in Afghanistan as well. And so we were part of an educated class of our community. So I think we should be recognized as a, as a particular group and we should be put in an image where uh, there is there is a, a recognition of our picture uh, uh, by the by the people and by the British public. I just wanted to mention one point about Sarah's point earlier. Mm. I usually walk on the streets in London. I live in a racist area of 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 the, of the UK in London. It's an area called Enfield. It's a rural area. It's where mostly the rich people with big houses live. And sometimes in the evening, I don't do, I come from work and I have nothing else to do. So I decide to walk around and go to the local parks and to explore the area. So when I go to the park, I see faces which are very strange to me. I see eyes which are not very welcoming to me. And I see gestures which are totally not gestures of friendship or, 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 or connection. So um, it's, uh, it's interesting that, that we, we, we experience these things here in the UK despite the type of work and the type, the, the, the type of history we have gone through in Afghanistan. But we can, we can see that uh, it's, it's, it's a society where Mostly people from all poorer or impoverished countries are here, from Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Kenya, Africa, or, or every other uh, traumatized poorer country. So we look the same and we do, there is no difference between us and them. But inside I feel like people are not uh, being... Uh, given enough awareness about, about certain category of people, especially us. Mm. Can I just follow? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, of course. No, I'm, Nasir, I was also just wondering, you know, um, I think you also mentioned to me and also others have mentioned to me this contrast that in Afghanistan you were seen as a colleague, you know, you were respected by the British people that you worked with. Um, 
and you know in some other veterans would say to me you know these people were my brother um you know we we had friendships and i think then the reception in the uk or in france or germany is like a cold shower because all of a sudden you're not seen as an equal anymore is that something that you yes yeah yeah i mean exactly we were seen as a colleague we were seen as an ally we were seen as a friend and we were seen as a savior sometimes i have come across situations where i had to do my best to save a british soldier's life from an attack from an ambush or from a threat threat of an ied by the taliban we worked long hours together night shifts day shifts in the desert slept in mountains walked long distances to reach the objective. So we were more than a colleague, we were more than a, just a friend, we were, we were, we were the, the means to, our, to each other's existence within that territory, within that geography at the, that particular time in Afghanistan. So we were seen quite respectably you know, close to, to our British, uh, you know, uh, uh, colleagues in Afghanistan. And then that changed once you arrived in the UK. I'm afraid it is completely the opposite of what I just explained to you. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so, so uh, one... One issue that you both still um, have mentioned is that despite these difficulties, um, there, uh, you know, sorry, you mentioned this Daily Mail um, uh, a campaign. campaign. Yeah, campaign. Mm-hmm. So, so there is still, um, despite this, quite a lot of um, support um, for uh, for this group. And in your work, sorry, you've highlighted there's kind of a paradox that there is this support. But then, at the same time, people don't easily get protection, um, and it kind of ties into this notion that, or, or, or we just talked about that you you were a colleague, and then all of a sudden um, you're not. So there's all these paradoxes. Do you have any explanation? <laughs> mm, yeah. So I mean, yes, they are receiving support, but I think the support that that Nasir is mentioning, uh, or that I would be mentioning, is mm. the support of. Um, individuals who either through their own experience uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq as veterans uh, feel very um, strongly about this issue. You know, the same, of course, with some of the journalists, right? They were embedded uh, in Afghanistan or or Iraq, and so they have seen with their own eyes uh, the the work that was done on the ground and the essential role that LEC played on the ground. And kind of what is a more structural uh, support that a government can provide or that the NATO could have provided. Um, and I think, um, of course, it, to an extent, it's always guesswork, right? Why there's this paradox. Um, I think there, there is a paradox in the sense that you would think normally the government might be uh, resistant to allowing a particular group of migrants to come into the country because they would be afraid of a backlash of the population. And in this case, that doesn't seem to be something that they need to fear. One, we're talking about quite small numbers relatively. Two, they do seem to have quite widespread popular support, as we could see in different petitions. Um, I think the, the, the lack of support comes probably from partly things that you could call maybe unintentional, right? So 
a lack of cooperation between different states. So I, it's just, it remains to me very fascinating that you can have a NATO mission where, yes, of course, individual countries play a role, but they also collectively um, operate in that mission and still you do not have a collective plan for what, do you, what you do after your withdrawal. Um, but also, I think a lack of cooperation, and this was mentioned um, in the Select Committee, Defence Select Committee in the UK Parliament, someone mentioned the fact that, you know, different departments in the UK are not necessarily coordinating on this issue. So, of course, we would need to have the Home Office, the Ministry of Defence, um, as well as some other departments, you know, when you think of the real integration of people, collaborate with each other in order to uh, protect as well as support LEC. Um, but I also think that there are some other issues. Uh, for example, um, we know that both the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are quite contentious. And we also know that there's a lot of interest in claiming that Afghanistan is safe um, and people should be able to go back to Afghanistan. And we know that asylum seekers get returned to Afghanistan. And so I think um, there might be a um, uh, resistance towards admitting that Afghanistan is not safe. Um, also because, of course, this says something about the mission in Afghanistan itself, which many veterans uh, regard as failed, uh, many of the veterans I, I, I interview. And they might also be worried about setting a precedent. Um, because, of course, this issue has not only happened in the past, but it will also happen again in the future, um, in missions in, in Mali, uh, perhaps in Syria. One thing I was just thinking just now is that in is there any discussion about in, in any of the Western countries of kind of changing the legal status? Because you might think that if you worked for a, a Western government, you shouldn't have to pro, um, actually seek protection in that country, but you should just, uh, you know, to kind of overcome some of the issues that you're talking about as well, about looking at or, or, or classifying Afghanistan as a safe country, wouldn't it in a way be smarter for these countries to just say, well, if you worked for any of these governments, then you, you just welcome. It doesn't matter if you actually have a protection need. I don't know. Uh, if yeah. So, I mean, different countries take a different approach to this, right? Um, so in France, for instance, there's a collective of lawyers that pushes for a quite interesting initiative. They say there's a law from 1983 that protects every person who was employed by the French state, for example, as a police officer, if this person uh, is in danger because of the job they performed. You know, maybe uh, a criminal wants to take revenge against a police officer, right? And so they say it doesn't matter if the person... Uh, that was employed is from Afghanistan or if the person is French. It is about the fact that as an employer, the French state has an obligation to protect uh, certain employees. Um, the British scheme is very different because what they did was that um, they have a redundancy scheme. So that only applies to people who were um, working for the British army at the time that they were withdrawing and they must have then worked already for them since 12 months. Um, so you can imagine that some people who have worked for four years prior to that withdrawal, they all of a sudden fall out of the scheme um, and can't seek protection. For that, there is an intimidation scheme. Um, and what they say is that um, they will look at the level of threat that people are facing. And on the basis of that, they decide whether people can 
safely internally relocate in Afghanistan, maybe with a different identity, different phone number, different car, or uh, need international resettlement. Now, uh, I think it's about, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I think it's about 380 people who applied for that um, intimidation scheme, and none of them um, got resettled to the UK under that scheme. So the UK decides every time that internal relocation in Afghanistan is safe enough. And maybe Nasir wants to say something about that, because the people that I interview certainly don't think that relocation in Afghanistan is sufficient. No, I, I certainly agree with you. So relocation into Afghanistan is not the solution. Because uh, as we can see and as we can hear the news every day from Afghanistan, it is becoming an entirely an extremely insecure country. The Taliban are gaining grounds politically and militarily. They are an active dynamic force at the moment. They are threatening Afghanistan's security and peace every day by all forms and means. So to remain in Afghanistan as a military interpreter in any location is not safe. Yeah. It is simply a case of putting Afghans in danger for, for, for a reason which doesn't make sense. Do you feel though that um, that even though all of these obstacles, all of these um, issues that we've talked about and that, um, you know, kind of getting the cold shoulder as soon as you uh, get into the UK. I know there's been, so there's been this campaign that we've been talking about and in the last few weeks, the government seems to have shifted this policy. So, well, I was actually going to ask a little bit more details about that, but I was just wondering, Nasir, if you feel like, you, you know, do you feel like the support um, has changed? Do you feel like it's sort of meaningful in any way? Maybe we can, can we just quickly clarify what has changed? Because yeah, I think yeah. that's important. So I think, I mean, because Nasi also has, I think, something to say about that. So the thing that the government has done, uh, so uh, the, the Minister of Defense has announced, Gavin Williamson has announced that those people who already are resettled to the UK, so these are people who were uh, fallen under the redundancy scheme, those people who have already been resettled to the UK, he waived their uh, fee that they had to pay to apply for indefinite leave to remain uh, because so far they only had the temporary leave to remain and, you know, their deadline was mm. coming up, uh, which was very expensive. And then, I, you know, partly in the wake of Windrush, where, of course, uh, for that Windrush generation, uh, that fee was also waived. Um, following pressure from this group, uh, he waived that particular fee. But for instance, for somebody, I mean, Anasia can explain it much better, but for somebody like Nasir, uh, that doesn't apply because he came here as an asylum seeker who then got refugee status. Nasir, you can probably better say yeah. that than me. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the recent program introduced by the Home Secretary is, is somehow a, a welcome news for a category of interpreters, but it isn't inclusive or it isn't comprehensive in its track practical terms. It doesn't include people like me. I came to the UK by myself and I went to the, through the procedure of the asylum process. So for me, who, for me as somebody who went to 
to seek asylum by himself and had no support by the government, this scheme has no meaning. I was waiting for to get my asylum done for one year, and I will be paying a fee at the end of the expiration of my visa. I will be paying a fee to get an indefinite leave to remain, and I will be paying a, another expensive fee to to get a passport, a British passport. Yeah, so exactly. There's this real contradiction that, you know, um, his asylum claim has been recognized. He has gotten refugee status and at the same time, this new move doesn't apply to him. And neither does it, of course, apply to any of the people who are still in Afghanistan, who are seeking protection, who apply to the intimidation scheme, but uh, were not um, granted international relocation. Yeah, I was just going to say it's it's more of a kind of backwards looking policy change and doesn't actually change the um, the the general um, policy towards uh, those those working now no and I mean I think um, so of course we can look at this issue in two different phases right one is a kind of uh, the phase of protection so how do we get people out of Afghanistan to Western nations but of course then the second phase is and what kind of recognition supports and rights do you bestow on them once they are in the, this country, right, or in other Western countries? Um, and I think, you know, this this one policy change uh, is only addressing such a tiny element of this that uh, I think what we need to hope is that this is only uh, one step, you know, towards um, a general change in policy and a general rethinking of the protection schemes that are in place. Can you see any other... Uh, I mean, even if it's a small move, can you see any other similar moves in other countries of kind of slightly shifting the attitude? Yeah, so um, what's really important, pretty much at the same time in France, um, there has been a lot of media attention again. But also what is happening there is that... um, so they had about 700 interpreters. Um, some of them got resettled, some of them didn't. And those whose application got rejected, they never got any reasons for the rejection. There was never any argument put forward. And so the French government has now decided uh, that these rejected cases need to be reviewed uh, once more. Um, so so that is something important, I think, that's happening. Um, in the United States, um, we see like every year a kind of battle to get um, a number of, of uh, visas again, because the special immigrant visas, which are uh, visas that are reserved for people who are seen as allied with the US, um, they always just put out a number for each year. So they say, okay, for this year we offer 2,000 visas, uh, but then we never know, of course, uh, if that's sufficient for the next year. And there are always more applicants than that there are visas available. So uh, we can see every year that... Um, at least to a limited degree, there's there's some success. Uh, but of course, that takes a lot of energy and effort uh, of different civil society activists. And for some people, the support comes too late. So in different places, we have uh, seen yeah very horrible cases. I mean, you might have read in the UK as well, there was a person who, like Nasir, applied for asylum and his case got rejected. He was in a detention center and he committed suicide. Um, so, um, you know, time is running out, of course, for people, um, both in terms of um, whether they are safe in Afghanistan, as well as 
how they manage to pick up their lives once they're here, you know? I mean, I, I know Nazirs are keen to, to study and go to university, so um, it is important for him to have a more permanent status and security regarding his status. Yeah, is there something you want to add to that, Nasir? Um, yes, I just wanted to add that uh, I very much will be hoping that the government allows me to stay here permanently and that they give me a status where I feel secure and, and safe for the future and where I can study, I can continue to my studies and I can get a degree on, in international relations. So, so you, that is my hope in the future. Have you not been able to um, pursue any of those um, goals um, since you got your asylum uh, um, approved? Um, from the time of my arrival to the UK until now, I have been been busy with, with with settling myself here and my life in the UK. As you know, for an immigrant and for a refugee, it's not very very easy to to get on with 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 whatever he wishes as quick as as it might seem for other people. Yeah, of um, course. But uh, I have been partly able to pursue my ambitions, and I'm hoping to fully reach my goals in the future in the UK, which is to study here, to get a degree, to get a British passport, and to securely, you know, uh, uh, become a, a citizen here. Yeah. Sara, do, um, do you have anything you want to add? Um, yes, I mean, I just maybe want to add that, uh, as I said before, I think um, a policy shift would be required in a range of different areas. So. Um, you know, you have to also think of, for example, the rules around family reunification. So is it possible for interpreters to get their families here and how difficult or easy is that for them? Um, but also, indeed, access to employment. So th these are people who define themselves through their work, right? I mean, it is their work that, that brought them here. Mm. Um, and so um, the resettlement scheme that is in place uh, is coordinated by different local authorities um, and that means that some people might end up in quite rural areas where it is difficult to find employment or um, the work they have done before is not recognized and so that's again something that you see in some other countries um, like in the US they're working towards um, getting further recognition for example of the veteran status right which in the US is very important when you try to find employment but also California as a state has decided to um, allow uh, locally engaged civilians immediate access to, uh, to to college, basically, you know, in order to study. Um, so, so I think that that's you know a policy shift is also required in that way, just to make sure that people who identify themselves as or define themselves in terms of their contribution to the states that they now live in uh, can continue to do so. Uh, yes, I just wanted to add quickly to the point Sarah made about employment. Yeah, See, of course. Uh, employment is one of the key issues for for the Afghan interpreters and for the community of uh, interpreters in Afghanistan, both for their families. We came to the UK with the hope to be able to 
add to, uh, to the prospects of our employability. Because um, since we came here, since I came here personally, things doesn't seem to have gone very well in terms of my career at the moment. And I haven't added any positive aspects to, to my to my career or to my set of skills or qualities that I had in Afghanistan. And I, I just they just remained as, as they were, or some of some some of them are are, are being washed away actually. Yeah, Nasir, so nobody is a key issue for us. We are hoping that the government facilitates, provides schemes, programs, and uh, introduces ways so that we can work, we can force our skills and our qualities, and we can make uh, you know a, a living out of out of out of something which is offered by the government. Yeah, I think that's really interesting in a way that we talk about this as um, as the government as offering protection, but actually um, the way that you describe the government is actually as your um, um, former employer. He's you know um, not really offering any any further opportunities, um, and uh, I don't know if yes. you think there might be would be a shift in policy if there was also a shift in thinking of the state not as offering asylum necessarily, but actually as the if, if, primarily as an employer with certain responsibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think so. Just to be clear about this, I mean, the, the local authorities that are um, tasked with the resettlement of Afghans, so this very select group of people who fell under the redundancy scheme, um, they do provide a set of services. Okay. And I've interviewed some individuals who work for those services, you know, and um, some of them are also as individual employees really committed to um, supporting as well as they can uh, the Afghan interpreters that they resettle. But that program has a time limit of a few months in which, of course, a lot of things need to happen, right? Somebody just arrives from Afghanistan, kids need to go to school, uh, people need to sign up for uh, benefits, etc. And so uh, those few months of support are often not, um, not sufficient. And, of course, uh, it often depends also on... Um, how well uh, committed and trained this particular person from uh, local governments or from local authorities is. You know, some of it gets also outsourced to private housing contractors who might or might not be as prepared. Uh, and there's no coordination. There, you know, of course, there's a contract with the state, uh, with the government in the UK, what they need to provide. Um, but what I would be really interested in is also to bring together the different local authorities that have signed up to this resettlement scheme to make sure that they can exchange information on best practices, what have they discovered about the needs of the group and how could they better uh, support them. But I think the other point about seeing the state not so much as a kind of um, <clears throat> benevolent, compassionate protector, yeah. um, but as an as an employer with certain duties, I think is is incredibly important, and um, I think you see that in in different ways. I mean, I think the veterans uh, often highlight that um, they feel indebted towards this group, right? So they say we have a moral duty to support this group. Um, the Afghans themselves, also Iraqis, as well as the vet, the supporters, they might also say it's a question of um, 
of reciprocal hospitality, you know? We hosted you when you were a foreigner and an alien in our country, you know? And we felt it was our responsibility. Of course, Afghans um, highlight also hospitality is a very important value. We felt we needed to uh, protect you and help you navigate Afghanistan. Please also do that for us when we then subsequently come to the UK. Um, and also, of course, if you think of the kind of slogan of, you know, the, the colonial slogan, we are here because you were there. Um, it's no coincidence that Afghan interpreters have ended up here. And I think indeed that there's a political responsibility uh, that comes with the mission. Um, so, we, yeah, we are not talking here about some conditional benevolent protection. We're really talking about rights and duties. To find out more about Nasir Ayan and Sarah de Jong, as well as the issues that have been discussed in this episode, please visit our website, talkimmigration.com. But that was all for this time. Thank you for listening.